Welcome to Red State of the Union Q&As. Uh, I'm Kevin Smith. I'm Jen Schwabach. Yeah, Jen's sitting in with me this week. <laughs> Bitch, Jen is going to be my shotgun partner. You're in the movie. I am. And we're going to do a uh, Red State of the Union with you when we uh, ramp up the next semester. Uh, but today you're just going to help me kind of set up these clips, if that's cool. Sure. Uh, just a long story short, for because we need it as part of the record. It, you know, it's happened everywhere, but we didn't kind of – there's no Red State of the Union pod about it. We went to Sundance, and we announced that we're going to distribute uh, the movie ourselves. We're going to take the movie out October 19th through Smodcast Pictures. That's right. Our little Smodcast network is going to release the movie. Um, and before that happens, uh, I'm going to take it out on tour um, in March uh, across the country. You know, I like to do Q&As, uh, and that's pretty much my job between movies. I made more on a stage doing q and I made more being myself doing Q&A the last two years than I did as a director. I know. So, yeah, I mean, this is, that's kind of – and people are like, he's crazy. And I'm like, am I? I mean, this is kind of simple math here. Um, plus, it's more fulfilling. It's way easier to go up, tell a story, and then have to pull it all together and get everybody to clear schedules and find money and blah, blah, blah. It's just as easy to go up, tell the story, and walk away. It's free to tell a story. You know, And you build a better version of any movie that I could ever – build for you in your head as i sit here talking that's kind of the wonder of smodcast you know what i'm saying it's like having a kevin smith movie without having to watch a kevin smith movie because you're building it in your head they're going to want to watch this one. Oh, this one's different though <laughs> this is a grown-up movie yeah this one looks great and if you've been listening to this pod you know all about it so we're bringing out ourselves if you've listened to every episode of this podcast you could have pieced it together i saw many people on twitter going like why don't you just self-distribute and stuff? And I always wanted to be like, we are, we are going to self-distribute. But I had to sit on that information. I can't believe the two of us with our big mouths. No fucking kidding, man. Sat on it for so long because no this kidding. has been from the get-go. From day four. Day four, we were working on the movie. I turned to John Gordon. We started having this conversation about like, you know, man, if if we pay four million to make this, that's the budget. And then they're going to, somebody buys it for four or six. Then they're going to spend another 10 to 20 marketing it. Like, we're never going to see any money again. That's just a waste of time. And he's like, but that's the game. And I was like, yeah, but the game is ridiculous because it, the game is, is set up for movies that, you know, have a shot. This movie didn't have a shot. This movie, we couldn't find money to make it for three years. We know it's not for everybody. It's really, well, it's indie. You know what I'm saying? This is a film that ain't going to play everywhere. It play at art houses and stuff, I said. So I was like, why, why spend that money? to kind of hit that audience. Like if it was just 4 million, we could make 4 million back right. probably more, but we can't make the 24 million, which it would be 4 million plus say another 20 in marketing tech. That'd on. be like self-sabotage. It's and, but we've been watching it for years and years. Right. They do it all the time and stuff. So I felt like, let's just try this. And it wouldn't be interesting if we've got such a low budget, the cheapest movie I've made since chasing Amy. Wouldn't it be interesting to kind of take this one out differently and see if like we can make all our money back before we even open wide. And when we open wide, we're opening it ourselves and we're not, and without doing any paid marketing, like, uh, TV ads, they're the most expensive part of the equation, commercials and stuff. Um, outdoor billboard advertise every way that you traditionally kind of hear about a movie. And that when I mean traditional, I mean for the last 50 years, we're trying the different, we're taking the social media approach. Like we're going to try just using Twitter or smodcast.com or Q and A's or me on the radio or me. I was just on Chelsea lately last night. It's just me getting out there. I mean, when was the last time that you actually watched a trailer on TV rather than online? Um, 
all of those spots that cost so much to yeah, put on TV. That's the thing. And we watch all of our trailers online. Well, we don't even watch like TV. We watch it when it's on like DVD or when you, you know, you can download it on iTunes the next morning. I'm a downloader. And if we TiVo it, you know, but up, but up, but up. So right. it's like I, I, for years as a filmmaker who's seen the bills that are attached to releasing, marketing your movie, when you see how much a television spot costs and where it's airing, uh, like I, you know, there was a time in my life where I was like, "Oh my God, I can't believe I've got a commercial for my movie on TV." But you know, that was the young amateur kid. As a as a businessman, you, you're you're looking at a, a sheet, a profit participation sheet, and going like, "Why did you put an Why did you put an ad for Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back on Lifetime? <laughs> like they're never coming." They're like, "Well, it was cheap." I was like, "It's twenty thousand dollars," and they're like, "Yeah, but still, that's inexpensive." And you're like, "Oh my lord!" Like. It's not, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not saying like people shouldn't advertise on television. Of course they, they should, but not for something like this. And, and also it's like, if you've got the money to spend on advertising, like a studio does, they have to. If you make Tron for a hundred or $150 million, you got to sell it worldwide to create your franchise. And you're, of course you're going to spend 75, a hundred million dollars to market it, you know, it, TV spots, outdoor, wherever, whatever they're doing, like to spend to get you to come see the movie. That's the business of being in, that's a studio business, the movie business, the studio business. But indie films aren't really, they don't fit into that model. Back in the nineties, we kind of did. Like Miramax had been bought by Disney. So they used the studio model of like spend to get people to come see the movie. You got to spend to earn, you know, as the old adage used to go. And so how did it, this news of self-distributing go over after your speech? It hit like a lead balloon, <laughs> uh, for some cats uh, in the blogger press and stuff. I don't know. People really kind of villainized me for it, which is weird because these are institutions that kind of go after the studios all the time for being wasteful and blowing money and making crap and never doing anything original, sequels and remakes. Then I step up there and I'm just like, Hey man, I'm gonna, I made a horror movie, which is different than I ever, always ever do. I stopped doing the Jay and Bob stuff that you guys always gave me shit about. So here's me doing something completely new. Doesn't even look like anything I ever shot. So I've kind of grown as a filmmaker. And rather than waste, arrogantly waste, uh, 10, 20 million dollars trying to market it and get people to come see it, I'm just gonna take it out myself. Like, uh, a very fiscally responsible, financially fiscally responsible. Um, and I'm play to my audience. You would imagine something like that would it be greeted with, well, this is news. This is interesting or good for him, but I don't give a shit. But oh my God, it was met with like, you would have thought I came, I hit that stage and was just like, I'm going to eat your babies. I call abortions for all hell has risen. The dark one is here. Like they villainized the fuck out of me. It was kind of weird. Um, even people who were like professionals who normally who like, you know, write for like trades that get paid and shit wrote bizarrely um fucking off the beaten path stories about like how megalomaniacal i was and arrogant and again my point is like isn't it more arrogant to say like this movie that nobody wanted to pay for they finally we finally found four million dollars to make it took us three years to find that money now i want you to spend three four five times that amount to convince people who have no interest to come see it it's just that's arrogant to me you know what i'm saying for me not saying for anyone else for me, particularly for this movie, it's a hard little movie, a hard to love movie. And so it needs special handling. It can't handle a wide release. You can't release this movie like they just released the right, you know, the Anthony Hopkins movie. That movie plays mainstream. It's like a priest battling the devil. Everybody likes that kind of stuff. This movie is not. Not mainstream. Oh, shit. No, it doesn't even know what genre it is. It's all <laughs> over the place. So for me, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll handle it myself. I'll special handle it. And I got taken to task for that. But. 
I don't know. That's well, let them hear what you down. said. Yeah, that's the point. Here's what I actually said because you probably read it a bunch of places. But here's what I've said. If you've ever, if you've been listening to the Red State of the Union podcast from the beginning, you're going to hear a lot of the same information you've heard since going back to the zero episode, episode zero, the press scrum for the Too Fat to Fly special, uh, Too Fat for 40 special on Epics. So here, um, if you've been listening, you're going to go like, there's nothing new here. Was, um, you know, sorry. A lot of these people in the room had never heard it before. So, and, and boy, Picture they him like with it. a hockey stick in one hand and a sign that says dick tastes yummy in the other. <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of, I'm a showman, man. I'm an entertainer. I believe in getting up there and putting on a damn show. And also in a world where we're not spending any marketing on our movie, not spending any ads, like, any bit of fucking attention or publicity is free and it's great. So, you know, look, they were all coming to my screening anyway. I just made a bit of a circus around it, put on a show before, during, and after you the did movie. did indeed. Yes. Um, so now hear the show and listen how fucking crazy and megalomaniacal and, and yeah, listen to me implode. Listen to me. What else did they say? Listen how crazy I am. Listen how arrogant, the arrogance in my voice. <laughs> Gavin Smith tells Hollywood to suck it. <laughs> yeah, that was, I saw that headline. Um, listen to this and you'll see that it's not nearly what everyone's been saying. Here you go. Okay. Um, so that was different. Um, we uh, we have some business to attend to, uh, but first off, I just wanted to explain the stick. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the very last hockey stick that Wayne Gretzky ever used as an Edmonton Oiler. This is the last stick that he was holding when he won his fourth and final Stanley Cup uh, back in 1988. Right after that, everything changed. The very next year, he went to Los Angeles and expanded the NHL throughout the United States, but... At that point, it was the beginning of the end of something. Fourth Stanley Cup, he'd been with those people forever, and then everything changed the next year. Um, I wanted to hold on to it uh, because Wayne Gretzky has become something of a personal hero of mine over the last two years. And um, Wayne Gretzky's father, Walter Gretzky, who became a friend of mine, is a guy I like very much, uh, gave his son a piece of advice when he was a kid because his father was his hockey teacher. Took him out on the, on the river out behind his grandmother's house, strapped skates on him, and would train him all the time. And then there was a backyard rink that he'd flood his backyard, train his kid there as well. The piece of advice that Walter Gretzky gave Wayne Gretzky was this, and it's, I, I've been using it for the last two years now. Uh, don't go where the puck's been. Go where it's going to be. The philosophy was simple. If you puck chase, you're always going to be behind the game. But if you kind of know where the puck's going to wind up, or if you study, or if you watch the game enough, you want to be the person that's where the puck's going to be, not scrumming in the fucking corner, but ready to take your shot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, 17 years ago, I came to this festival and took my shot, and it was amazing. My life changed in an evening. Everything fucking changed. And from that moment forward, we kept pretty busy working. We came back here a couple of years after uh, Clerks with Chasing Amy, and that was nice because I had made Clerks, then I made Mall Rats, and everyone hated Mall Rats for some reason. <laughs> then I came back here with Chasing Amy, and everyone was like, good job, you're back. And I got pats on the back and stuff like that. And I was like, whew, my career is saved. Last movie I made was Cop Out. Um, so naturally, I had to get back here fucking quick. And... Uh, <laughs> 
and this is the movie I came with. Now, as you can see, this is a labor of love. As I said before, um, we're talking about uh, September 21st is when we started shooting, and we're talking about a budget of less than $4 million, um, a, a little hair under. We'll open up, you'll be able to see the exact figure later on, but it's a little hair under four million bucks. Um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And we did it quick, shot about 25 days. Four months later, we're here. While we were making that movie, I was assisted by a zillion Gretzkys on my crew. Everyone there cinched the belts to pull it off. We're up at the Sundance Film Festival, so this is not an uncommon story. When you're passionate about something, uh, everyone feels it and kind of jumps in if they dig the project enough. I don't think I would have gotten that same kind of uh, cooperation on Cop Out, but I certainly got it on this movie in a big bad way, and it was moving. People just didn't fucking get paid. Some cats, I was one, but some cats didn't get paid. Some cats took well below their rate, um, and everyone was there, even though we had late nights and shit. The same old independent story that you've heard a zillion fucking times. We were all in it for the love. And I love that, man. I've been in this business 17 years now, making films, good or bad, for that long, and I've made, this is my 10th flick. And in that time, I've learned a few things. Like, when I was here originally, the, the, the most important thing in the world that I, could, that I could do was sell my movie. So, this time was the first independent flick I made since Clerks, the first time that somebody else didn't pay for the movie. Well, I mean, we had investors, but no studio paid for the movie, and it was scary, because I was like, okay, we're gonna go up there, do what we're supposed to do, make the movie, bring it up, sell the movie, that's what you do. And I started thinking about the math. It's a four million dollar movie, and if we sell it to a distributor, let's say it's about, maybe we get four, maybe we get six if we're fucking lucky. Things don't seem to be going for the happy Texas dollars anymore up here. So let's say it's about four million. Let's say we get six. We're real luggies. And Harvey goes ape shit. Here's six. Let me go back to the Jets game. Um, <laughs> let's say we get six. Movie like this, essentially, when they go out there in the world with it, they put $20 million in marketing on it. There's what they call in this business the Lionsgate 20 million. It's not a, uh, a mark that, you know, it's not slam by any stretch of the imagination. Dude's like, yeah, Lionsgate. Um, <laughs> Lionsgate does a standard 20 million bucks, man. They just kind of spend about 20 million on all their movies and they, you know, they've worked it out to their average, works out very nicely for them. So then I sat there going, okay, budget's four million, then uh, they give us, let's say we get six for it. Um, suddenly we gotta make back six million before I'll feel okay. I was Catholic, raised Catholic. I carry a lot of guilt about borrowing people's money. So at that point, essentially, we gotta make not the four million dollars that we made the movie for, but then, well, now six to pay back if we got six million from somebody. Then they put the 20 million on top of it. And that's 26 million the movie's now gotta make. But it's okay, we could probably do fucking 26 million, we try hard enough. But we all know that's not the case, because all that money doesn't go back to a studio or a distributor or anything like that. So essentially, you then have to make 50 million dollars, double that 26 million dollars, a little over, a little under the double number, in order to make in order to just get into the profit line. This is one of the things that I've learned in 17 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I never wanted to know jack shit about business. I'm a fat, masturbating stoner, you know? I, that's why I got into the movie business. It, it seemed like the place where fat, masturbating stoners went. 
And if somebody had told me at the beginning of my career, you're going to have to learn so much about business, finance, amortization, uh, all this shit, monetization, I would have been like, fuck it, I'm just going to stay home, smoke and masturbate, because there's... <laughs> That's too much work, man. If somebody told me all the stupid, horseshit, soul-killing, uncreative, backwards-ass bullshit business that I now have in my head, that I've pushed out creative things to make a way for like, okay, we're going to take the movie out, it has to be a four-quadrant movie, it has to play here, 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 and here. If we do that, then we're going to look at this money coming in, half of that goes back, don't forget the revenue stream with DVD. It's too much fucking horseshit. I just want to tell fucking stories. So... This is what I've been thinking. When they spend that 20 million bucks, generally they spend it to get attention. They spend it to get people in to see the movie. But in our case, we will have spent $4 million and then someone else will spend 20 million marketing it. And that's five times the amount of money that we actually had to make the movie. I could have used 20 million making this movie, as you can see. You know, we could have used some more cash. Looks fantastic, but that's a $4 million movie. If I had 20 to make the movie, everyone would have got paid. Nobody would have had to take, you know, a fucking low salary or no salary whatsoever. People could have stayed in nice places. But we didn't. We cinched our belts and we all did it together to pull it in for the four million bucks just so that when all was said and done, it was a low budget and we could hopefully sell it for, you know, a bunch of money and everyone be happy and happily ever after the end. It just doesn't really kind of work like that anymore, man. For me, the idea of spending five times giving somebody else five times the amount of the budget for the movie that we all collectively made, tried our asses off real hard. Like it's a big enough hurdle to find money to make a movie. And then when it's all said and done, they're like, that's nothing compared to what you're gonna spend because the model came from the studios. Studio model makes sense. You spend 100 million on a movie, you better spend 150 to 100 million marketing in this day and age, you know, because you're trying to build a franchise. That makes sense. And when studios started buying indies, that's when I got in the game. It was back when, you know, Disney bought Miramax. So I came into a world of like, we spend on movies. But Harvey was so fucking clever back then. The, the, the company had just been bought and shit like that. And he still had that fucking like, I'm not going to spend money. Harvey would always tell us something that inspired me. Every fucking, it, it, he created a kind of brotherhood mentality at Miramax. And one of the things that he said, which always fucking got to me, was just like, he would look at other studios opening movies. Um, just, you know, not just studios, but like the new lines and shit like the fine lines, even back in the day. And whenever they would open well with like something that really wasn't that good, Harvey would literally just go, fuck, they just keep buying it. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, they just keep buying it. Anybody can buy the opening of a movie. It takes no talent to spend $20 million to make people aware of the fucking movie. Now you got to make that money back. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. And Harvey would always say, studio 30 million is like my 15 million. My 15 is like their 30. I know how to spend money. Because Harvey was very, very good and taught us very well how to release a film. We just paid attention for many, many years and watched what he did. The man was a genius. He was amazing. He was an artist. And I just sat there and sucked it all in, me and John Gordon. Because John trained under Harvey. John was Harvey's assistant for years and years. So we called our company the Harvey Boys for Harvey because he taught us everything we know. And one of the things that Harvey taught us is never give up a sure thing. Never give up a good thing, man. Hold on to it yourself. And the more I started thinking about that compared to like, we gotta sell the movie and then go through the whole rigmarole of everything. Every time I've ever made a movie, it's the same fucking thing. We make it for a very small budget. Somebody spends a shit ton of money in marketing it. 
And then I never see anything. Nobody ever sees any money ever again. They're just like, well, it's still, you know, we still got to make our money back. It took seven years for Clerks, a movie that cost $27,575 to go into profit. When that's happening, when, when, when you're spending four times, five times the amount to market a movie or open a movie than you are to make it, that's not an inspiring game at all. No kid can get into it now. I look at the fucking film world now and I'm like, there's no way I would have tried it. I wouldn't have tried Clerks today because it's impenetrable. Even if you're lucky enough to make a movie, how the fuck are you gonna open a movie? It takes so much fucking money and shit, so much time, effort, and everything is fetishized about that one fucking three days. They'll spend 30, 40, 50 million just for three fucking days. I spent 25 days working on this. I'm not gonna fucking sit there and bank everything on three days. Like, there's no point. Now, I've been doing some shit on the side for a few years now, aside from this movie nonsense, and I've kind of built up a little audience of sources. There's a Twitter thing, of course, but we have this Smodcast network um, of podcasts that we do. Um, some guys have heard of it. Um, online, and during that, we've built it up into a, a financial concern of some sort. It's a profitable little fun thing. It used to be a hobby. Now we make money off of it. Um, the two best or bigger, most heard or most listened to podcasts on the network pull in about 300,000 listeners per episode. Um, via that and via like Twitter, I've been able to sell out Carnegie Hall without spending a fucking dime in marketing. I've sold out the Sydney Opera House twice. I've sold out about 15, 19 theaters across this country this year after I got kicked off the airplane and started busting around and just getting on stage and crying about it. Um, <laughs> And in that time, man, I figured out, like, uh, this is what it's all about to me. It's great we can all sit here in front of the movie, but this is the best part, sitting there and talking to people afterwards. And that's something I'm used to doing. I do it on the podcast. I do it on Twitter all fucking day long. And I love to do it when we take the movie out on the road. And what I would like to keep doing is doing that. I had so much fun making this movie. I have had so much fun Getting the movie ready for Sundance, call it what you will, marketing, spinning, fucking turning it into a circus. I did it from my fucking desk in my office while smoking joints and going, this might be fun, you know, and, and it was a blast and it was creative and then suddenly it was like, movie doesn't have to end when you make the movie. This makes no sense to me. After 17 years, I don't understand. It's like, I'm a parent now, so I can kind of think of things in terms of children and parents. It would be akin, selling my film is akin to having a baby, and then handing it over to somebody else to raise. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know how to raise my kid. It's been 17 years I've been doing this. I've been out there in the world. I've been listening. I think I know how to fucking do this. So, I know a lot of cats have earned the audience uh, waiting for an auction. I, I talked about there would be, I was gonna pick my distributor in the room, auction style. I can't speak for the movie by myself. I'm not the only one. I'm just the writer-director. Um, I would like John Gordon to come up here and join me real quick. Where is he? Come on up. John Gordon, ladies and gentlemen, my producer. Um, John, essentially, when it comes to the, to the, to the flick, I, you know, I do creative shit, and John has definitely taken care of all the fucking business aspects of the movie, so if we're gonna do an auction, John should really conduct it, because in my heart of hearts, I don't wanna fucking sell the movie to somebody who's just gonna pour money on top of it, but this is a business that we're in, there's no avoiding it. John's gonna conduct the auction, open up the floor right now. It's gonna be very simple, very fucking civil, and we're gonna see what this movie's worth. John? <laughs> um, I'm 
hereby opening up the bidding on Wednesday. I bid $20. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I came here 17 years ago and all I wanted to do was sell my movie. And I can't think of anything fucking worse 17 years later than selling our movies to people that just don't fucking get it. And their most creative fucking endeavors like, well, let's just spend money on it. I'm sure that'll work. This has been so much fun for me, making the flick and keeping the flick alive. And we're going to keep it alive till October 19th. We're going to release this picture ourselves through my Smodcast Pictures banner. Um, thank you. On October 19th, uh, that's when we hope to be in theaters uh, in terms of uh, New York or LA or wide. We're not quite sure. We're going to have to figure that out. Um, but October 19th is a special day for me. It is the 17th anniversary of the theatrical release of Clerks. So we figured, like, let's hit that date because, I don't know, it's kind of similar. We're starting over, so to speak. And this time, it's not enough to just make the movie. We have to learn how to release the movie because true independence isn't making a film and selling it to some jackass. True independence is schlepping that shit to the people yourself. And that's what I intend to do. So. Smodcast Pictures is going to take Red State out on the road. Uh, just kind of the way that they used to do with the movies. Like Gone with the Wind would go play somewhere for a week, a month, pack up, go someplace else, play it there as well. Pack up, leave, do that kind of thing. Roadshow. We're going to do the same thing with Red State. It's called the Red State USA Tour, and it kicks off on March 5th in Radio City Music Hall. So we're going to show Red State and the fucking Blue State. Um, it is a big deal for us. Uh, that's a big fucking house, and uh, we aim to fill it. 6,000 seats, so we're going to need your help. That's one of the reasons I didn't have as many screenings here as everyone wanted and shit. I'm going to make money off this bitch, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I ain't playing the game the way you all play the game anymore, where it's just like sell it and somebody pours money out. No, every fucking penny counts in this. Every penny of this operation has to be monetized and put right back into the fucking kitty. So we're going to make our money back by going out on the road and going city by city. March 5th, it starts in Radio City Music Hall. The next day is uh, March 6th, the Wilbur Theater in Boston. March 8th, the Harris Theater in Chicago. March 9th, the State Theater in Minneapolis. March 10th, Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. March 11th, Close Hall, Indianapolis. March 12th, Midland Theater, Kansas City. That's the home of the Phelpses. Um, so I might pick at their fucking house. Um, <laughs> March 14th, we go to Clark State Pack Center in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, March 22nd, the Paramount Theater in Denver. Uh, March 26th, McAllister Theater in New Orleans. March 28th, the Paramount Theater in Austin. March 29th, the Cobb Energy Center in Atlanta. And uh, April 4th, the Marion Oliver McCall Hall in Seattle. Those are our first set of dates. Now, we've done the math. We take our picture out on the road for those 15 dates. We can sell out all those rooms. And I think we can. Essentially, right there, we're at about netting $1.5, $1.7 million. So essentially, we're almost halfway back to paying our budget off. You know what I'm saying? None of this fucking marketing. We're going to play the game straight, and we're not going to spend a fucking dime on marketing. I've been able to just whip up. Look at all the shit I've been able to do with this movie. I feel like the Joker. I'm like, look what I did with a couple cans of gasoline and some bullets. <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying? Like all it takes is just a little ingenuity, a little creativity. And since we create these movies and love them so much, it only makes sense that we take them out into the world. And fucking, I'm happy to bring this pl the flick from place to place. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to tour the movie for the, uh, from now until October 19th. If you can't wait to see it in a normal movie theater on October 19th, then you could come see it on any one of these tour dates throughout March and the beginning of April. Then we could go quiet for another month. And if we're lucky and if the tour goes well, we'll open up the tour again. John and I intend to pay the entire $4 million budget back before the movie opens on October 19th. When it opens on October 19th, we're not going to spend to open it. We're not going to buy any commercials. Uh, we're not going to uh, do print media, outdoor, billboards, nothing like that. Essentially, we're just going to pay of the P&A equation, which is prints and advertising, we're going to do the P part. We're going to make our prints. We have to in order to show the movie. The advertising part, we're not going to do it all. Um, what else am I? What else do I got? What? Thank you. John, what a great producer. Um, now, we're obviously not selling the movie, so I'm sorry to, to a lot of the distributors in the room, some of the cats who are here. Look, I'm, one, I'm not that sorry. It's a fucking film festival. Come see a movie. Uh, <laughs> number two, you saw the movie. You can't do anything with it, but I know how to fucking sell this movie. <laughs> I know how to market this movie, man. Like, so, so don't, no hard feelings. Hopefully you don't mind. Next time, maybe we sell you the movie. Fuck it, we'll never sell you the movie. Um, but thank you for coming. I'm sorry if you left the Jets game. I put a Twitter out where I was just like, hey man, I understand sports enthusiasm, so if you feel the need to watch the Jets game and not come to the movie, no harm, no foul. So if people uh, didn't do that, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But at the same time, I will say this in my own defense. A lot of these work for studios and shit. Studios make movies. Movies uh, uh, have trailers. So you guys make a lot of trailers. You've lied to me many times. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I've seen many trailers where I was like, this is awesome. And I put my money down. I'm like, you fucking lying whores. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, we're up here alienating all our future work. Just... <laughs> burning the bridge as we cross it. And uh, that means that there's probably not gonna be much studio help for me and John in the future, but what we do need to release this movie, what anybody needs to release a movie, is not a motherfucking studio. You need a goddamn exhibitor. So me and John are talking to any smart exhibitor partners out there who are willing to listen. We wanna partner up, man. We wanna show our flick in your theater, in your houses, and this is what I could tell you. Last few years, I've been pulling in about eight to 10 million in box office, man. I, we now naturally they spent to get to that point, but we'll see. I think at this point, based on the amount of tours I've been able to sell out, the amount of merchandise we've been able to sell, Smodcast, how big it's become. I mean, I'm literally wearing a pair of Smodcast sneakers, the Forgeticus, you know? It's, that's, we've got something there. So essentially, once, fuck, I forgot where I was going with it. Oh, exhibitor partner. <laughs> I've got an audience, ladies and gentlemen. They come to see the shit I do. Not everyone likes it. A lot of people come see the stuff I do. They're very hardcore, and they've been waiting for this movie for, for a long, long fucking time. Exhibitor partners, you want to get in bed with us. We'll give you way better fucking terms than the studios, and you know these motherfuckers fuck you constantly, man. Constantly. <laughs> we'll give you more to ticket on the first weekend than they ever fucking will. Um, and at the end of the day and shit, we won't screw you over for numbers. We won't be like, well, you gotta take fucking this piece of shit. If you want Dark Knight, you gotta take this piece of shit cop out. You know, we won't do shit like that. <laughs> we wanna partner up with you. We wanna be in bed with you. I'm a filmmaker. I just need a place to show my movie. That's a movie theater. So we're looking for a smart exhibitor partner who wants to come in with us, give us some screens, get a nice fucking split of the loot and whatnot, and do this as a separate outside model. Here's the thing. 
If I was a kid and I was trying to get into the film business and I just saw how difficult it was, how expensive it is and shit like that, I would just sit there and be like, forget it, I'm not gonna fucking try. What we wanna do is like, yes, anybody can make a movie. We know that now. We know that because I've made 10. You know what I'm saying? That means anybody can make a fucking movie. What we aim to prove is that anybody can release a movie as well. And it's not enough to just make it and sell it anymore, I'm sorry. Look, if this is your first Sundance and that's all you wanna do, by all means, fucking do it. I don't think you're stupid for wanting to do it. I did it myself once. But indie film isn't dead, people. It just grew up. It's just indie film 2.0 now. And in indie film 2.0, we don't let them sell our movie. We sell our movie ourselves. So please join me when we're out on the road. I'm not talking to the press. I'm not talking to distributors and shit like that. I'm talking to potential filmmakers out there, and I'm not also talking to just this room. This is also a podcast that will be online tomorrow. Um, okay, I'm almost done. Almost done. Um, help us out with this. Please come out and see the flick. In these theaters, we're showing it. Naturally, it ain't going to play for the price of a fucking movie in a multiplex. You're going to pay probably six, seven, maybe ten times as much as you would normally pay to see a movie, but we're going to give you some cool shit. We got the movie in a stately grandeur house. I'm going to come up do Q&A afterwards. I'm going to bring the great Mr. Michael Parks with me. And Michael Parks perhaps will be encouraged to sing. It's going to be a good fucking time, but here's the important thing. If we can get this right, if we can crack this fucking nut, if we can get distribution down so that we can step aside from the fucking studio model, from the expensive model, make it affordable to everybody. If we can do this right, and if we finish where we think we'll finish, this kicks open the door for me and John for what we were trying to do when we were building Red State originally. We wanted to crowdsource finance the movie. Fans wanted to see it made, so we were like, fuck it, let's let them pay for it and shit, and then we can all go to Sundance. And then somebody scared me off of it online. They said I was a beggar and shit. So I was, ooh, I better not do that. Scared me right offline. I didn't want to do it anymore. Now with the Red State experience, now that we're kind of the captains of our own future and shit, where we're going to distribute the movie ourselves and whatnot, it's time to kick open the next logical step in evolution. I'm almost done making movies, folks. This is the second to last. Hit somebody's the next one I'm going to do. After that, I'm fucking done. What I want to do after I make that movie, though, is start making your movies. So once we get the red state code cracked, if this works for us, Smodcast Pictures belongs to all of us. And you're going to make your movies and put them out our fucking, through our studio, and it ain't going to cost you a fucking dime. So root for us, if you will. Hate us, if you must. Um, but I can't think of a more interesting business news story that you're ever gonna hear about this fucking year, man. We're definitely gonna go out there, try to find a new distribution model. Please help us out in doing it. Thank you for coming to see Red State tonight. Can I bring up the cast real quick before we get out of here? Where are they? Guys, jump up real quick. I'm sorry, it took so much time talking. Yeah, While they're coming up here, let me give a shout out uh, to my man Sean, who took three flights from fucking Upper Alberta to get this stick here today. And boy, did I need it. Hi, guys. Um, uh, give it up, ladies and gentlemen. There's Michael Angarano, Nick Braun, Carrie Bechet, Kyle Gallner, Stephen Root, Betty Aberlin and the amazing Mr. Michael Parks.
right. So that was that. Uh, do I sound fucking megalomaniacal? I, I, to me, I mean, yeah, I may be holding a hockey stick and I may be speaking passionately, but they painted me like I was Khrushchev beating the fucking desk going like, we went about it, you. Like they tried to make it like all of Hollywood is mad at him. Number one, all of Hollywood's just getting back from Sundance. Uh, number two, I know. I don't know all of Hollywood, but I know a lot of Hollywood. And before I made this move, I talked to a lot of my marketing friends, my studio friends, smart people in this business and said like, hey, man, if I was thinking about this, like uh, this is news to the press, this whole plan. And it's news to uh, to the world, maybe if you haven't been following this podcast. But like I've been talking to everybody about this for a while to make sure that like I was kind of making the right move, including studio people, marketing people and whatnot. And most of them were just like, why don't you do it with Clerks 3? Like, that makes more sense. You can self-distribute Clerks 3 and make a lot of money because everyone likes Clerks. But I don't own Clerks. And also, I don't have a Clerks 3 in me. I'd rather live Clerks 2. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, making a sequel to Clerks. Like, at the end of Clerks 2, the boys bought the store. Like, my favorite part of that movie, favorite part of any movie I've ever done, is Jeff Anderson screaming at Brian O'Halloran, like, I'd buy the quick stop and reopen it myself. Like, I wrote that line for a reason. And it didn't occur to me until years later. It was like, oh, Yes, that's what you believe in. Like, it's not just something Randall says in a script. That's who you are. And I realized, like, yeah, like, why not? Why not buy the quick stop and re- you can't have this motherfucker, the, the most the hateful fucking uh, misanthrope in all of cinema, have his own breakthrough and say something that you yourself can't admit to. And then finally, one day I was like, yeah, I would like to buy the quick stop figuratively and reopen it myself. Take charge of my own career. You know, I've seen. I think I know how to run a business now. It's been 17 years, nearly 20 years of doing this. So for me, it's like, I don't want to make clerks three. I want to live clerks three. I want to, you know, take off from clerks two and see what happens when the boys open their own shop. And rather than write it as a dopey movie, I want to live it in my own life. So I, you know, the next morning we screened again in Sundance. Uh, it was the first screening was where you heard me just talking and holding a hockey stick and we will bury you. That was in uh, at the Eccles Theater at Sundance, 1,200-seater. Um, the next morning, we went to the Park City Library. I think it's like 300 or 400. I don't know how many seats. Um, and after that screening, I did another Q&A um, with uh, Michael Parks. But unfortunately, at the end of the Q&A, like you'll, you'll hear me introduce Michael Parks, and you'll hear thunderous applause. And then you'll hear me and Jen again because, unfortunately, you can't hear Michael. He mutters. He mutters. But he's very quiet and he didn't work the mic. But I was mic. That's why you can hear me like to my mouth because Zach and Joey mic'd me. Michael was working on the house mic. So he was then only getting picked up by the tiny mic in my in my shirt or whatnot. So it's not, it wasn't good. Otherwise, you'd hear it. But if you want to listen to Michael Parks talk, listen to that Red State of the Union Q&A where he's interviewed the whole Parks episode. Um, okay. So this is the post Q&A after the Park City Library right. screening. Monday morning. Monday morning. Here we go. Um, there we go. Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, I'll tell you, I had a crazy night last night. <laughs> Woke up this morning, I was like, honey, what did we do? And she let me read a bunch of shit. I was like, oh, God, no. Um, it was fun. Uh, last night, we decided, we announced uh, that uh, something we've been planning for a while. We're going to distribute the movie ourselves under Smodcast Pictures banner. Take it on the road like a uh, movie style in the old days. We used to take Gone with the Wind from city to city to city. Yes. Um, 
that's the first part of it. Uh, for me, I, and again, like some people have taken great fucking consternation with some of the shit I said last night, and I guess I can't uh, be shocked by that to some degree, but it's, it's not personal. I'm not saying don't sell your movies. By all means, everyone wants to do that's fine. I've been doing this for 17 years, though. I think I can make this decision for myself. I'm not saying this is the way everybody has to do it. This is the only way I could do it with this movie. While we were making it, I was just like, I don't know, I just can't see selling it. We're too invested, I like it, and it's small enough, the budget's small enough, where four million is not that difficult to get back. But if we start piling marketing costs on top of it, it's gonna be impossible to get back. Throw 20 million on top of that four million to market it, then I gotta make 50 million before the movie sees profit. You know what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm a Catholic, I gotta make money for people. <laughs> when I borrow it from them to make a movie and shit. So what we're gonna do is take the movie out on the road. Uh, we're starting at Radio City Music Hall on, uh, yeah, or what we call Radio City Music Hall. Uh, March 5th, it starts there, and then we go out across the country. It's about 15 dates uh, planned for the first tour. Then we'll probably wait two months, go back out on the road again. Uh, and we're gonna keep doing that until we get our $4 million budget back for our investors, so that by the time we come out on screens, October 19th, will be fully in profit. And basically every penny we make at that point is just profit. We're not gonna spend any money on marketing, no TV spots, no outdoor, no print media. We're just gonna do it ourselves uh, via Twitter and this Modcast network that I've got. So I don't know, it's just after 17 years, I, I came up here and, and it's weird. I'm in the same position I was when I came here 17 years ago. <laughs> I don't have a distributor, but, uh, <laughs> but I do have a distributor. I mean, I'm my own. And the thing is, I just feel, I, you know, a lot of people are like, what an idiot, he's a fucking asshole. He'll never do it. They always say that when you do anything. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's like, why not try this? Like I've released nine movies the traditional way and I've studied it for 17 years now. And I, I, I know what happens. Like. It's the same permutation over and over. Why not just try this by virtue of the fact that I haven't done this yet? You know, when you keep doing something for as long as you, you do, when you create art for a living, and some people, you know, of course, don't feel it's art, but it's art, it's a film festival, it must be art. If you create <laughs> art for a living, every once in a while you have to fucking like poke something straight up your ass and be like, ah, remember that scene in fucking True Grit? Where uh, uh, the new True Grit, not the other one? where um, uh, Jeff Bridges has a little girl and he's riding on a horse and the horse is just giving out and shit like that. And he's like, go! And he stabs it in the leg and the horse takes off. This is me stabbing my horse in the leg, essentially. Um, or myself in the foot, I'm not sure. I guess we'll, <laughs> I guess we'll find out soon. But long and short of it is like this, to, uh, taking it out by myself, I'm not judging anybody else, but for me to be truly independent, like I would like to be like I was 17 years ago when I came here, this just is the only way that makes sense to me. I love the movie. I want to take it myself to the people. Um, and I'm not asking anybody to come that doesn't want to go. That's fine. Like you don't. I'm not saying, oh, everybody's got to come out. I'm, I'm just selling to my audience. Now I've been chided for this this morning in a few pieces where people are like, oh, he's just going to sell to his audience. Ladies and gentlemen, Steven Spielberg sells to his audience. Uh, the Who sells to their audience. You know, Bruce Willis sells to his audience. Um, we all sell to our audiences. I don't understand why everyone wants to marginalize my audience all the time. And people have been doing that for years, like in the press and in the studios. Like whenever we would get ready to market a movie or something like that, they talk about spending money on this, that, or the other thing. I'm like, why are you putting advertisements on this channel? Why are you spending this? Like, even in the case of Clerks 2, I was like, don't spend any money. It has a two in the title. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> motherfuckers who went to the first one, they're the only ones coming back. You never could have convinced fresh eyes to come out and see Clerks too, And still they spent money on it. So for me, I'm just like, I, 
I know I've got an audience and I know I can make this money back and probably do a little bit more if I don't fucking throw on all those add-on costs that come later. And those add-on costs are simply about reaching an audience. But I already reach an audience, so I'm just, and I like my audience, and they like me. So I just want to <laughs> keep making shit for them. And, and And I know that must irritate a couple bloggers I saw this morning, but and who keep taking me to task for like, he just plays to his audience. I'm like, we all play to our audience, man. It's like, why am I penalized for that? I, we all, like Steven Spielberg doesn't get penalized for playing to his audience. No one's ever like, he just plays to his audience. And Steven Spielberg's like, all right, I guess I better grow as a filmmaker. <laughs> I'm happy I have any fucking audience. So naturally, I'm going to play to him. Anyway, that's all that. Let's talk about the fucking movie. And I want to introduce you to a man without whom this movie, uh, this, without whom this movie wouldn't exist. 1995, I'm sitting in uh, uh, a theater at the Lemley in Los Angeles watching a preview of From Dusk Till Dawn. And uh, in the first 10 minutes of From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, Michael Parks hits the screen, takes the screen, and owns the screen. And even though he gets killed at the end of the 10 minutes, spoiler, spoiler, um, <laughs> he made a fucking impact on me. That night in 1995, I turned to my friend Scott Mosier, I was like, I gotta make a movie with this man. I would love to just sit on a set, watch that guy for like three weeks, four weeks, that'd be fantastic. It took me 15 years to accomplish it, but we're here tonight. I, I don't care what happens, whether we're successful or not taking the movie out by ourselves, uh, whether it makes a lot of money, no money, if people, he's a genius, he's a fucking idiot. Um, the best thing that came out of Red State was I got to work with a true master, and I'd like to introduce them all to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Parks. Okay, that, so that was the Sundance experience. Uh, if you want to continue our story personally, like me and Jen, on the latest episode of Plus One, we talk about the bus ride home and stuff. Right. And there's a lot of insight into the movie and, and our experience up there and our feelings afterwards. <laughs> and and it is, it's kind of – if you're into the story, which isn't just the movie or isn't just the business thing or isn't just us releasing it or isn't just this person's in it, it's the whole. If you're interested in the entire Red State tale – Go listen to that episode of Plus One. It's kind of insightful. But we had a few days down. Right. And then back here uh, in Los Angeles, we had a screening. We kept calling it the blogger screening because originally it, it started online on Twitter. Some bloggers were coming to my house to watch the movie. Then some other bloggers who weren't coming uh, bitched that those cats who were coming would never give honest reviews because they were in my house or some such shit. At that point, I was like, all right. I'll take that screening out of my house and we'll put it at Laser Pacific where Dave does all the post work on the movie and they do a fantastic job for us. If you walk down a fucking hallway, it looks like, uh, I, I own the place cause you're like, clerks too, cop out, uh, you know, Zach and Mary, it's everything Dave's worked on. So, um, which I think they must take them down and put them up when I, I think so. Yeah, they gotta, there's no way there, there can't be a Kevin Smith memorial hallway anyway. <laughs> Great screening room, beautiful. And, and they were able to show the digital print there. Sound is great. So we had that screening. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I was going to talk to everybody and I asked Laser Pacific very quickly, Oh my God, I forgot to bring a recording device. Do you guys have anything? And they had, uh, something that w worked and you can hear it. It's not like the best sound quality, but it's totally listenable. Um, my side is again, when people ask me questions from the audience, it's going to sound dead silent. Like you, if you listen closely, you'll just hear. I'm sure you will cover whatever they were asking very 
I tend, I tend to, as a pro, I tend to repeat the question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if you just bear with that, the, that point, because it'll be very little patches of silence and then fat boy will be like, well, ranch I think date, ranch ranch date, ranch date. Yes, that is the soundtrack of the Um, so that blogger screening was uh, was uh, again blogger. I, I mean, I, I don't know how many bloggers we actually had because we started a list and then it, it started changing when people were like, "I got tickets to Sunday and some blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. But in any event, there were about twenty six, thirty people there. Some of them were the lovely people who bid on the po- the red state posters that yes. we would auction for charity and you know give to various causes. Um, so those cats were there in attendance as well. And this is the Q and A that followed. Uh, okay, uh, thanks for coming out. Tonight is a screening that we were gonna have at my house. Instead, we had it here at Laser Pacific in Los Angeles, in their wonderful fucking screening room and whatnot. Gathered on a Friday night at 6.30, uh, to kick back and watch some Red State. Sadly, we have one mic, so I'm gonna have to repeat your questions if you have questions. If you don't have questions, we can just get out of here. Um, but you may have a question or two, and I understand that completely. Uh, let's kick it off. Anybody? Fire. <laughs> right. Somebody, the guy who plays Cooper, uh, the Cooper, the guy who plays the guy on the cross in the movie, the actor's named Cooper Thornton. Uh, three weeks before Christmas, I got a package and my wife was like, it's time to call the FBI again. I was like, why? And, you know, and that's something we throw around in our house a lot, time to call the FBI again. I said, why? And this time she goes, I think we got a creepy doll. Somebody's threatening you. And I opened it up and it was a Ken doll with a ball gag in his mouth and a cross behind him. And it was from Cooper. He's like, I know you like to make action figures. Here's mine. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is from a dude in the movie. She's like, you got strange friends. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, no action figures on this one. No ball gags either. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, that's my voice. It's not, but I'll explain that in a minute. Okay. It's that's what it is. It's just different. That's all. They won't because he's in my movie. <laughs> oh yeah. It's a campaign for that kind of stuff. I, no plans now. I mean, that to me is kind of like you got to let other people say whether or not you should run for that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? It'd be weird for me to be like. Uh, I think we're Academy Award worthy. Otherwise, you know, I'd have run like Chasing Amy or something like that. I mean, but to be fair, every movie I made, I was like, we could win Academy Awards. People were like, Jane, Silent Bob, Strike Back. I said, yes. It's never been done before. Um, so for me, uh, we didn't think that far in terms of that. That's like real pie in the sky. Uh, for us, it's all about just this getting up to October. Uh, and that's the thing that a lot of people seem to have a real problem with. Uh, I, I don't know. I've been called any number of things like arrogant and crass and crazy. I don't know why. Uh, the movie's coming out October just the way. We're basically following the Clerks release plan. Uh, Clerks got picked up at Sundance in January, and then it came out in October. And during that 10-month span, me and Moja just went on the road, and we didn't four-wall the movie, but essentially it was four-walling. We didn't get to keep the cash, but we're, they were awareness screenings. So we went from film festival, film festival, film festival. I believe we did, I think at last count, it was like 22 film festivals that year. The rest were college awareness screenings where you just, you know, go to college campuses, show it and whatnot, do Q&A. That's where I kind of learned to do Q&A because I was on the road for so long for that year. 
So when me and John Gordon were working on Red State, we're about day four. And that's when I was just like, man, all these people working so damn hard. And everyone's cinching their belts. I ain't getting paid. John ain't getting paid. And then at the end of the day, like, we're doing it to keep budget cap low, keep it like $4 million. Nobody wanted to finance a movie. I understand it's an ugly little movie, and it's not like, you know, people go, here, here's a bunch of cash. Thanks. It's the kind of thing that, you know, it took three years to find financing for. So I'm sitting there while we're making it. We'd already shot like three days with the boys. We're on the first day of Michael Parks in the chapel. And I said uh, to John, I was just like, you know what's weird, man, is like, we're pulling this off for this budget. The moment we sell it, somebody's going to put a bunch of marketing money on top of it, as per usual. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's the game. And I was like, but does it have to be? Like, here's the thing. Like, follow me. I said, we got $4 million budget. That's pretty easy to get back. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not like an insurmountable hill in terms of making an entertainment, making a movie. Um, it does become insurmountable for me if we start tacking on big marketing. I... I came up in the 90s when indie film was in its heyday and people were willing to like throw marketing dollars at indie, at indie movies, Miramax particularly, because they'd just been bought by, by uh, Disney at that point. That world just doesn't fucking exist anymore. Global financial collapse, if there was any hope for that old indie world, killed it. It just doesn't exist. There's not any money out there like there used to be. So I'm sitting there going, I, I, my, I know my audience will go see the stuff I do. They always uh, support me. It's really nice. Um, the people I work with who distribute the movies generally take that marketing money and try to reach people who don't give a shit. You know what I'm saying? That's the marketing game. The idea is, like I'd always say, why are we going after these people? Like, my audience doesn't care. They would hate this trailer. This poster doesn't seem to tell the story of the movie. And I would always get, Kevin, your audience is coming. Just, we're going to reach beyond. Let's go for an audience that isn't necessarily coming to support and for years, I'd be like, all right, you guys know what you're doing. You're the smart ones. And then with this, I just felt like all the signs pointed to if it's four million bucks and somebody tapped, uh, taxed 10 even or 20 million in marketing. I always use the Lionsgate 20 example. Let's say 10, a, some, a really conservative number. My movie can't withstand that. You know what I'm saying? Four million bucks I could make back for the investors, turn a little profit and stuff like that, keep it kind of quiet and just take it out myself. I'm not the kind of filmmaker whose work can sustain itself in this economy. You know what I'm saying? I don't make movies for everybody. I make movies for like this many people and whatnot. So at the end of the day, this many people will come out. Comedy, horror, whether it's just me standing on stage or me standing there talking to Scott Mosier. They'll follow. They're interested for whatever reason. The Fish audience, just like the Grateful Dead audience, just like the Who audience, or but smaller. You know what I'm saying? Those cats are always coming. I don't need to spend money to get to them. Why waste that money? So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it just this once. I've done it nine times the other way. You know what I'm saying? Like nine times I've gone through the theatrical release and watched them spend marketing money. And just for the sake of variety, let's just try it the other way once just to see like if it works. And it's not a brilliant or new plan. It's four-walling. Essentially, between movies, what I guess a lot of people don't follow me wouldn't know, but between movies, I go out on the road. That's what I do. I stand up, do Q&A, and then I, I uh, do now. Last year, it was all about Smodcast and, and the various Smodcast shows on the road. So after Red State was done, that was always planned, go on the road. Red State, we started shooting November, not November, September 21st. So we didn't expect to make Sundance. Our thing was like, well, we'll gun and gun and gun. If we make it, Fantastic, but if not, we're starting so late we can't expect it because we were supposed to start earlier and we moved our, our start date. So me and John let go of Sundance. Then when I was shooting, I was cutting and we were going and going very fast. So you know, halfway through, I was like, we might be done. We may be able to hit it. 
you know, at the end of the day, submit to Sundays. I don't know if we'll get in, but we could hit the submission date. And we submitted, and mercifully we got in and shit. So that kind of expedited our plans a little bit because we didn't expect this to come out till October, as we talked about, because we want to come out Halloween time. You know, it's, it's kind of, we hope it's a scary movie. Uh, scary for the right reasons. Um, <laughs> not Jersey Girl, Zach and Mary scary. Uh, or Cop Out Terrifying. So, um, so for us, we were coming out October. That was our whole thing. We'll come out around, you know, 17th anniversary, clerks and shit. But here we got done. We were able to make Sundance. Cooper was like, why don't you show it? And we were finished. We were just going to be sitting on our movie and stuff. So we were like, let's take it up there. And um, somewhere along the way, earlier on, when we started talking about, like, if we took it out ourselves, my philosophy to John was like, I'm going out on the road anyway. Once we're done with this and if we get into Sundance and Sundance happens, I'll leave time for that. But, like, February, March, i got to go out and do what I do, just go out and stand on stage. Then all of a sudden we started talking about why not bring it. Like in the beginning when I started doing Q&A, it literally followed a movie. You know, I'd go up after Clerks or Mall Rats and sit there and talk, motherfuckers. And then it, that was only 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and I hated it because it's like you just get your head of steam going. And they're like, good night, everybody, you know, because people have been watching a movie for two hours or 90 minutes. So eventually I started being like, just, we don't even have to watch the movie. Anybody who's fucking coming to hear me talk is seeing these movies. Well, let's not waste the time. Let's just talk instead. So the movie went away, became all Q&A. The tour that we're about to do is just basically going back to what we did in the beginning, which is here's the movie, and afterwards we get up and we talk about it. Now, uh, the, the, I'm going to, like, Radio City Music Hall. That's the big one. That's a big kickoff. And then there's a bunch of dates across the country. The house is much smaller than Radio City Music Hall. That's the tricky one to fill. Um, at the end of the day, we keep telling people, like, you don't have to fucking come. Nobody's saying you got to come see this movie right now if you want, blah, blah, blah. No. Movie comes out in October. At which point you'll be able to pay 10 bucks to see it at a local multiplex, God willing, or at least at a local indie house. Uh, until then, though, if you do want to come out, you could see it on the road. And yeah, the ticket prices are like 50, 65 bucks. But that's what they've been paying to see me by myself without a movie. So most of my audience, you know, I see a lot of people like, these prices are outrageous. They would never come see me in a million years. They don't know anyway. Everyone else who's been buying tickets all day are cats who's like, yeah, man, like, this is, you're actually seeing a free movie. Like, I paid as much to see that fat motherfucker by himself. Now I'm paying this, and I get to see a fat motherfucker and a movie and a show. So for me, I was like, let's do that for a while. I'm going out anyway. This is a great awareness screening process for us. In a world where we don't want to spend on marketing, we go out city by city and show it to a 1,000 people or more. That's incredible word of mouth, hopefully. Hopefully they all leave talking about it, good or bad. If they're talking about it, that's fine. I mean, that's the, definitely the lesson of Sundance. It's just like there's uh, good press and there's bad press. doesn't matter. They're just talking about the movie and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. For me, that's kind of the, the how and why about it. When we release the movie by ourselves in October, uh, it, you know, it'll just be kind of standard release. You would never know that there was nobody behind it unless I'd said something in the beginning. There was no – I guess some film people would look and see whose logo's at the top. and wouldn't see any. But other than that – I doubt you'll know much difference, except if you're following online, you'll know the movie's coming. If you're following, waiting for a TV spot, you'll you'll never know unless you watch like me on like a talk show or something like that showing a clip. Yes. Yes. No, well, not so much push that, but yeah, the idea that I know way more about business now than when I started is something that I didn't sign up for. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wanted to learn how to make films. I didn't want to learn the business of film. It just comes along with the territory. Yes. 
I'm already got that head full of business. That's what I'm saying. I might as well put it to good use now. Like after 17 years, I've learned some things, whether I wanted to or not. The fact that I have them all in my head at this moment in time as everything kind of converges at once where I'm like lowest budgeted movie I've made since Chasing Amy. Um, me knowing that spending 10 or 20 on marketing is a complete waste of fucking time and, the, and the, it'll take longer for the movie on video to kind of come back or not just video but now you know digital Netflix and all the other uh, various revenue streams knowing all that shit I just looked at it looked at my movie and I was just like it's impossible but if we just play to our crowd we'll be fine and that's all who cares about the movie anyway you know what I'm saying so for me it's it's a no-brainer but yeah that business shit unfortunately me and John we've spent a lot of time doing it today John spent all day dealing with uh, the foreign sales guy and whatnot uh, because of course we can't release the movie anyplace else is the other thing people were like what are you gonna do in the uk i'm like i can't release a movie in the united states like i've never done it here let me whenever i talk about like i'm doing this i'm doing that i talk about where i live not every place else we'll be doing what harvey and bob do with the movie selling it abroad you know what i'm saying selling it to a british distributor they'll know what to do with it in their territory french i mean could you imagine me trying to release a movie in france well i don't even speak the language i would just be like <laughs> you know but get out you know so for me, I, I, uh, it's that, that is very traditional. We're taking the very traditional route when it comes to selling the movie abroad. We have no fucking choice about that. And all we want to do is just try this domestic release by ourselves. Now, the business of film and the math of film is, uh, is this. Like, because I've seen a lot of people going like, it's doomed for failure. We wouldn't have tried it if it was doomed for failure. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm cagey, motherfucker. I like being in this business. I'm retiring from directing, but I like being in this business. So I wouldn't make a rash fucking move. Unless I was pretty sure it was going to work out. The only reason we tried taking on tour is because I know people come see me on tour without the movie. And now I'm like, they've always wanted to see the movie for three years I've been talking about. I think a tour will work out. Um, but the other stuff, man, I, like in terms of like, is it risky? Will it work? I saw a Tech Dirt article, which I loved, where he was like, it's calculated risk. And I think it looks riskier from the outside than the inside. And it's it's kind of true. Like we, uh, we're, we're going, I think, to Berlin, uh, not next week, but the week after, to take care of our international territories and sales. And if between foreign sales and DVD, our investors are more than covered. You know what I'm saying? So that piece of budget will be covered, and that means all the touring and stuff is just gravy. And since we're not spending to get people into the tour, it's just profit at that point. You know what I'm saying? So business-wise, we're, we're sound. You know what I'm saying? Like covered worldwide, we'll be totally covered once we, we sell our territories. The only thing I want to experiment is here in my backyard where I live and stuff like that. And I'm only trying that experiment because I tried it last year, you know, without the movie. I went out on the road for like 20, 25 dates just to see. And I figured like sooner or later, man, I'm going to hit a house that's like under a quarter full. How many times can you hear me just go like one time I wrote a script for Superman, you know. But every house would just fill up, fill up. So I went on. I, I kind of already take the journey. I already taken the journey and I know that it'll kind of work you know it's not that fraught with peril and as long as you're willing to give it a shot and the stars aligned for me to give it a shot the budget being as low as it was that was it the key to me i was i would never try this with something else a lot of my friends in the uh, distribution business marketing friends and shit over at the studios um were very quick to be like it's a great move but don't do it with this do it with clerks three that's the no-brainer because your audience will come out for clerks three and ta-da and it always seemed like a great idea, but I don't have a Clerks 3 in me. You know what I'm saying? That's why I'm kind of like, I'm retiring, folks. And everyone's like, he's lying. He'll be back. I won't. Not directing. Like, I'm, I'm a writer-director. 
you know, the, the engine that drives my train is screenwriting. And I've run out of screenwriting stories to tell. Like, I've run out of stories I want to tell in cinema. On Smodcast, I could do it 86 times a fucking week, three times a day if I want to. Jump on a stage, do this shit like this. I get to express myself inordinately. So there's no need for me to do it here anymore, especially because, like, I've done it 10 times. You know what I'm saying? Like, if somebody was just like, you, you get your dream gets to come true, and you're like, thanks. And then the next year, they're like, yeah, it could come true again. You're like, oh, Jesus, thanks. And then the next year, like, again. And you're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And sooner or later, dude, it's just like, stop, stop it, stop, stop. You know, I, I would like to try something else. By the time I'm ready to walk away from this after hit somebody, 20 years will have been invested in, in cinema. When I was 21, it's coming up on August 2nd, my 21st birthday, I went to see Richard Linklater's film Slacker at the Angelica Film Center, and that was the movie changed my life. I left that theater, and from that moment forward, I just wanted to be a filmmaker. But now I'm coming to the moment, I guess. It happens for most. Quentin always told me directing is a young man's game, and I was like, you're out of your mind, but I think you might be right. It's coming where I'm like, I think I'm done. I think my journey, my 20-year journey is done. I've done everything more than anything I ever wanted to do in film. I literally just wanted to make Clerks so that we could take it, show it to somebody, and be like, we know how to make a movie. And they'd be like, here you go, here's some money. And then we can make a movie with their money. That was it. I had two films that I was kind of knew I wanted to do. I knew we'd make Clerks, and hopefully it would lead to whatever the next one was, which I hoped would be Dogma. From that moment forward, the fucking journey that it's been has been incredible and a big bucket of win and just awesome. And even when it sucked, it was awesome. But after 20 years of doing anything, you start to go like, eh. you know, my father-in-law was a cop for 20 years. He fucking retired. He's just like, you know, you're done. After you see that many dead bodies, after you solve that many crimes or try and effort and, you know, and fail to solve that many crimes, I did it for 20 years. I'd like to do something else for 20 years. So, you know, the podcasting thing really took off and like I've got, you know, being on stage and stuff and, and there's always like TV. Somebody hit me up today on Twitter like, what about Clerks 3 or a closure to the Viewersk Universe? And I was like, no more in film, man. Like, I'm done. The Viewersk Universe closed very nicely with Clerks, I always felt. Leave the boys out in front. Leave the boys inside. Story's over. I mean, I didn't make Clerks 3 because I live Clerks 3. You know what I'm saying? I looked at Clerks 2 and I was like, my favorite moment is, is Randall going, I'd buy the quick stop and reopen it myself. Ta-da, like that is. Me releasing Red State is I'll buy the quick stop and reopen it myself. And I can only do that because for the last few years, of 17 years and so, I've been afforded great chances, wonderful opportunities. I've made people a bunch of money, and that's helpful too. Believe me, there's no love in this business. It's all about what you can do for, for people. And I've made some cats some coins, so that's kept me around. But I'm I'm happy. I've loved it. It's awesome. But it's just time to close this up and move on to something else and whatnot. And I think Red State and then Hit Somebody is kind of the way to go out. I look forward to finishing like I started just independently. And not like some people have made it like, he's fucking shot across the bow of the studio. It's ridiculous. I work in the studios. I, I have friends there and shit like that. I mean, there's no animosity. My animosity for anything is for the system. You know what I'm saying? It's not for like Sue Kroll at Warner Brothers. I love Sue Kroll at Warner Brothers. I went to work on fucking Couple of Dicks. One of the key reasons was that I can hang out with Sue Kroll in her marketing department because I thought Dark Knight was one of the best marketed films of all time. So I watched that shit, and I was like, i got to get to know Sue Kroll. I want to know whoever works in that marketing department. And one of the reasons for taking combat was exactly that. I was like, I get to rub shoulders with these motherfuckers and not just call them up out of the blue and be like, how do you market a movie? So I was like, all right, I'm going to give it up. And, you know, it's fun for me to do and shit like that, but I get to hang out with her and listen and study at her knee and, like, find out why she did shit. And even when we were done working together, she was still kind of teaching me whether she wanted to or not. Like, I, I, I had seen the town, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck poster you put together for that. And she figured it out. She's like, scary nuns, bitch, and put it up on a poster. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I'll see it twice. You know what I'm saying? 
So she's a really, really, really good at her job, and she's one of the people that I would listen to all the time. Harvey was a, and is remains a brilliant fucking marketer, and I studied at his knee for years and years and years. That and not in a, this kind of way, uh, <laughs> not in my knees, his knee. And um, and he taught me like everything that I learned about marketing from an, uh, from the ground up and whatnot. And uh, he said this thing for years and years. He would always talk about like. They're 30 in terms of marketing. Their 30 million is my 15 million. He's like, I only have to spend 15 to have the same effect that they have spending 30 because I know how to use the money, spend it wisely and stuff like that. And after hearing that for many, many years under the aegis of Miramax, then the Weinstein Company, the chance to, the, to kind of go someplace else and be like, okay, let's see if 30 is really 15 was nice because for years you're told one thing and then you're like, hey, I get to learn for myself whether it's true or not. I went over there and, and kind of figured out it's not as simple as like, you know, 15 and 30. There's very subtle nuances to marketing. But the first and foremost lesson that you learn from any of them is that they spend. You have to spend. And I was just like, I don't think I have to spend. Not for this one. You know what I'm saying? And it just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Thank you. Yes, up top. One question. What time is it? I just have to. I got a show at 10 o'clock. 840. Okay, we'll do 20 minutes. Is that cool? And then I got to go be an idiot with Jason Mewes. Hi, you guys won one of the posters. Yeah, thank you. Right on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Please, because I'd have to clear it with the wife. <laughs> She's very helpful, but there, you know, she's got real weird lines about me putting my dick in people. <laughs> she's so old-fashioned like that. Uh, but thank you for coming out. Do you just want to tell me that? We'll fuck later. Oh, okay. Oh, beautiful. Uh huh. My brother uh, is gay. Gay is days long. Married to a dude. That's how gay is. And they've been married for, let me see, as long as I've been making flicks. As long as, 17, it's coming up on 17 years. They got married uh, um, in Morristown, I think, in Jersey, um, the year that Clerks was coming out, maybe a month or two before the movie came out. I remember it because it was the hands down the best wedding I've ever been to. I'm not a real big wedding guy because I am a guy. But this wedding was pretty astounding. Just when it gets fucking boring, like every wedding, a drag show kicked off. And and people like dudes dressed as chicks and famous chicks came down. I like famous people. So I was like, that's Donna Summer, you know. And, and it was great. It was just a normal point of the wedding where you're like, let's fucking go. So they're like, let's hang around. And it was like the only time I got to see my mother get groped by my father because they were on the dance floor watching the female impersonators. And I saw my father cut my mom's ass and, and puss from behind. And I was like, this is insane, man. Like, cause I didn't know what was doing it for him. The fact that he was like looking at male transvestites and it was very confusing for me, but it was a fantastic wedding. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I never wanted that. I, I, and then he died. I never got to ask him, do you want cock, dad? <laughs> um, so in any event, uh, yeah, my brother's gay and that sort of naturally kind of comes from there. I'm very, I love my brother. And I remember uh, when I was driving uh, to the Vancouver film school, he was dropping me off to go to school there. Um, I, I, my mother had told me months before, she's like, you know, sit down, I gotta tell you something. And I was like, oh god, what? And she said, your brother Donald, <sighs> he's gay. 
And I was like, for one second, I was like, what? And then I went, I thought about his whole life. I go, that makes total fucking sense. Is he really? I was like, my God, that makes sense, man. Because I came over his apartment that one time. Him and that dude were sitting suspiciously far apart on the couch. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even sit that far apart from my friends and shit. So, you know, she's like, you can't tell him. He's got to tell you himself and whatnot. And I was always hurt. Like, why wouldn't he tell me? Like, did he think I was that asshole to be like, ooh, you fucking faggot or something like that? And so months, I waited for it to come up. Never came up. We're driving to Vancouver. He's dropped me off film school. And a uh, two-hour ride from where we were in Seattle, two and a half hours. And I, I thought, maybe now it's going to come up. Never came up. We're almost within sight of Vancouver. You can see the city skyline. And so I'm like, this now or never, because he's going to drop me off and then take off. And I'm there for the next few months, and he's going back uh, back east. So finally, I just turned to him, and I was just like, I understand you have an alternative lifestyle. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's why when one my pudding, I eat a lot of dick. And I was like, yeah, that's what I heard. Why didn't, why wouldn't you tell me that? And he was just like, I don't know. He's like, I, we never really had the chance to sit down and have the conversation or, or something. I was like, did you think I was like some sort of hate monger or something? He goes, no, it's just it's not the kind of thing you call you up and be like, dude, I'm kind of gay. And I, I asked him, I was like, you know, went through the normal questions. It was kind of like the scene in Chasing Amy where Banky's like asking Alyssa all the questions. And at one point, I was like, what do you do when you go to the movies, dude? Like, I go to the movies, it's always boy meets girl, and they fall in love and happily ever after. And he's like, well, I mean, I can understand love and compassion, sex, affection, all that shit. So I can enjoy that in a movie. But, yeah, it's kind of beat. Every once in a while, you're watching the boy and a girl kiss, and you're just like, I, I guess that's great for them. That's not my world. And I always felt a little bad about that. So I figured for every movie, if I ever got to make a movie, I'd always whip a little gay shit in there for my brother. So that while he's watching, he wasn't just sitting there going, I don't give a shit about these breeder fucking comedies, you know. Suddenly something would come up for him. He'd be like, oh, right on, right on. So I always kind of whip a little gay content, and, and, and for him especially. Right on, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Lawyers told us to do that when they uh, looked at the script. Uh, they were like, look, if you want to insure yourself, you might want to try the law and order approach. And we said, what's that? They're like, just name check Fred Phelps. And we were like, oh, I could do that. I've watched lots of law and order. So um, I threw in the line about sue or not do her just to be like, hey, this family is really not that family, just to cover ourselves. Honestly, like nothing. That's the thing. Like it's so the 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 disconnect between like what I read and and what I know is always a couple miles wide and shit. So I'm used to that. That's been happening. But I got kind of a baptism of fire in regards to that when it came to Southwest Airlines. That was the worst, man. Like being in my house for three days straight, going into my room and and looking at my wife who she spends a lot of time on Google News. And I woke up one morning. She's like, you're at the top of Google News. And I was like, why? What did I do? And she's like, that, what do you mean, what did you do? And uh, I said, oh, my God. And I was like, I don't want to be there. And I used to, like, you know, I'm a filmmaker and shit. I used to love press. I used to say, I'm a press whore and shit. I used to like to see my name in print. My mom, you know, when I was a kid, she was just like, you get your name in print, you're a special person. That kind of shit sticks with you and whatnot. Once the Southwest thing happened, I was like, yeah, only special fat fucking people get their names in the newspaper. I don't I want no part of it. It was tough. It was fucking painful. I would come in day after day and be like, has it dropped from the top of Google News? And she'd be like, no. And I was like, oh, that's tough, dude. Like, you know what I'm saying? I got pretty, everyone's like, he's so thin skinned. I actually got a pretty thick skin and it's full of blubber. And that's the one thing that I'm always been kind of sensitive about. So to have the whole world given permission by you by virtue of your tweets, by calling, you know, I sat there calling myself fat. The whole world got to, who writes, got to write fat in the headline. Like, everyone got to call me fat because I called myself fat. 
And when you see 3,000, 5,000 articles that are telling you you're fat at once coming in and, you know, everyone's having a good time, like fat guy in a little chair, you know, that was tough. I, I was tough, dude. That was the toughest fucking three days of my life. I never thought it would end. I thought life was irrevocably changed and shit. I was like, this is it. Like, I'll, I'll never get over this. The whole fucking world knows I'm fat now. I thought it was a secret. Um, and then three days later, Tiger Woods said that he cheated on his wife. Nobody gave a fuck about me. So after that three-day period of just like getting hit, it's almost like being tied to the goalie post and everyone just firing fucking pucks at you. There's nothing anymore that bugs me. You know what I'm saying? That was the fucking worst it ever got. So if somebody's like, I don't like his movie, he's a terrible director, like that's that's brushing off a gnat at this point. Before Southwest, that would bug me. It would sting. After Southwest, it's just like you got to dig a lot harder to fucking hurt, man. That That was the true pain. So this shit, in terms of like, I know there are a lot of people that don't understand or up in arms and stuff. I don't know. That doesn't, it doesn't bother me really. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know what to tell them. Like, do you want to give me 20 million to release the movie? You know, like, I, I, it, to me, I'm like, I'm just doing what I, what I want to do with my flick. I don't understand why that's such a big deal. So I, I don't know. I've, I've stopped trying to fathom why people write what they write, whether it's, true or not so i just kind of let it go i mean like i said the whole experiment is like i'm just going to talk to the audience that cares you know what i'm saying people that want to see it there seems to be no point in going after people that don't want to see it anymore and some people go like oh that's uh, he just doesn't want to be criticized bullshit like i get criticized constantly within my community for the film itself but that's for the film itself like i you know some of the reviews that came out they ain't reviewing the movie they're literally were fucking reviewing me at that point so, you know, it's I, it, I've put all that stuff away. I used to love reading reviews and stuff. I've stopped reading pretty much fucking everything at this point. I, I just read the Twitter feed, and uh, every once in a while, people will, like, kind of link articles in there, and every once in a while, I see it that way. But to be honest, most times, I just don't really gravitate off the page. At the end of the day, it's like I, I spent 17 years going, what do you guys think? What do you think? Is it good? Is it good? Tell me it's good. And 17 years in, I got to a point where I'm like, I like it. I hope you guys like it. If you don't, I'm sorry. I hope you like the next one. But, oh, I dig it. Let's watch the movie. I got very Ben Affleck about my shit, you know, just like I sit there with a big bowl of popcorn and enjoy it. I'm like, right, everybody? Right, right? So that's kind of where I am. And I don't know, man, after nearly 20 years, I think that's where you get. You get to a place where you're like, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin, happy with the movies I make and shit like that. Let's roll. Um, but I don't know. The stuff, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I was very surprised when they were just like people going after you. I was like, why? And they're like, because you're releasing your own movie. And I was like, why? And they're like, I don't know. That's it. And I was like, I, people are mad because I'm taking my movie out. They said, yeah, you're arrogant and crass. And who the fuck do you think you are? I was like, isn't it more arrogant for me to say, like, my movie costs $4 million. Let me pour $20 million on top of it. That's arrogance. Me going, like, I'm just going to personally take my movie out to all these shows that I do. I didn't think that was arrogant. But black is white, up is down sometimes in the blogosphere. But the one thing I've noticed is, like, you know, if you wait a few minutes, it just goes away. Sooner or later, there's somebody else that everybody's mad at or something like that. And I think when the dust settles, most people will be like, why are we mad at him again? Oh, yeah, he's releasing his movie. What a dick. Sir, ma'am. Thank you. I don't know. Honestly, I, I've been thinking about it a lot this year. I just think I give off a fucking pheromone of some sort. You know what I'm saying? Like that, some dogs meet other dogs and you can tell they just don't fucking like them. No good reason. They sniff their ass and they're like, ah. 
Same thing here. Like, there's no, honestly, there's no quantifiable reason. It can't be like, he's a bad filmmaker. There are lots of bad filmmakers. And also, enjoying film is subjective. You know what I'm saying? That's not good enough. It, it, it's got to be something else. And, and I think it's just, I'm just one of those people. Some people are like, I don't like him. I'm like, why? Like, I don't know. I just don't fucking like him. Happens like that. There are people in my life that I can't explain why. I'm like, I don't like that motherfucker. And they're like, why? He's always nice to you. I'm like, I don't care. I don't like him. And I guess it goes the same way for me. I went, I, I went to Vancouver film school, but I'm not from there. I wish I was. I always wish I was Canadian. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, Canada is considered international. I mean, even though we're on the same landmass, we looked into releasing it in Canada ourselves and due to the tax structure and the laws up there and the GST and the PST is just insanely cost prohibitive for us to do it. Now, our Canadian distributor picks it up, they can do it, and I'll go up there and tour like I'm touring here. We'll probably pick one per province and bang, 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 go right across the country. But for me to go up there and do it myself, we ran it, and it's just like we'll come home with next to nothing or something. We might as well sell it up to them and let the Canadian distributors do what they do up there. It's a different system up there altogether, as you know. It's like it's not like a bunch of studios or a bunch of distribs. There's now two. It used to be one. When I was growing up, it was just like, you go to Canada, you sell your movie, you pretty much sell it to Alliance, and that's it. And now there's Alliance and one more, I think. Yeah, yeah. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? And we'll all play hockey. That that was our idea. It wasn't. It, we kept saying like, let's do it like you do a rock concert, man. You know, like take it out, and the main show is that, and then the encore is we come out and talk or do Q and A. No. But they will have me getting up there in front of them, being, ladies and gentlemen, these are the movies that I've picked to take out on tour this this month, this year, whatever the model winds up being with Smodcast Pictures. I like the After Dark series tour that those horror movie cats do. They put together a few flicks, and they take them out on the road, and that's kind of like, I think, what we could do with Smodcast Pictures. Now, mind you, I'm not going, I don't want to build a business. I built one, and that's fine. This is kind of more about getting stuff out there, by way of the fact that I have a connection with the audience and blah, blah, blah. So for me, it's it's not like I want to turn this into Miramax. I, I would like to turn it into Miramax for others. I don't want to run a business anymore. So when we're done with Hit Somebody, the idea is to kind of open up Smodcast Pictures the way they they did with uh, Project Greenlight, where everybody can submit a script or something like that. And then I guess the way they had it done was everybody read like a bunch of different scripts, narrowed it down, narrowed it. Because if you have like 4,000 people submitting, I can't read 4,000 scripts, nor do I have any interest, nor does John. So you have people kind of read each other's and narrow them down to like the 10 best and then, you know, work from there, figure out which one it's going to be. But unlike Project Greenlight, no cameras, no like, let's document how humiliating this is for everybody. Just let motherfucker go make their movie and shit. And then when they're all done, cut their movie and whatnot. And I think the option will be there for them to, like, take it. If they could sell it, God bless and shit. If not, 
our Smodcast pictures would be a place for people whose movies can't find a fucking home, you know, eventually. If you played out the festival circuit and nobody's tossing it up for you or anything like that, if you just want to see your shit on a screen, this would be the way to do it, rather than just like, yeah, I made a movie once and it's on video, but we never had it in the theater. This would be a cool way to do it. For years and years, I've heard from people who are just like, I wish I had what you have with clerks, man. You got to play in theaters and stuff like that. Because there's something about movie makers, even as we enter the 21st fucking century, even as like common wisdom, everybody in the fucking world keeps telling me, just do video on demand. You would be the king of video on demand. Like right now, the best-selling video on demand title in the current marketplace, I think, is the Ryan Gosling movie where he plays the killer, not Blue Valentine, the other one. What is it? All good things. And I think it's up to four or five million video on demand sales. And that's very high in this market. And some, uh, my lawyer was just like, dude, take Red State Video On Demand. You do 10 million easy, man. Let's do that. But there's something, I came from the 90s, man. I'm a remnant from what's left from those period. And back then, we had to put our movie in the movie theater. It was just part of the deal. You're a movie maker, you want a movie theater. And when we went straight to video, we were told that that was failure. So that's the climate I was raised in. And for me, even though, like, I'm a digital guy. I fucking live online, man. Digital distribution should be an absolute no-brainer for me. But I still, part of me lives back where I was raised. And back where I was raised, you make a movie, you put it in a goddamn movie theater. That's the fucking dream. Lights go down, bunch of bodies, story comes up, and you're off and fucking running. There's that little special magic, whatever the fuck it is, that happens in this room. And that's what we all kind of go for and strive for. And that's why... When people don't get it, when they get close, but then it doesn't get distribution, and they've played at some festivals, but that's it. You always feel like you didn't quite take it as far as you wanted to, because the dream is to play your movie in a movie theater, not on an iPod. Eventually, it'll get there, but first, we want to play it in front of a bunch of people and stuff. So there's, I still have vestigial parts of fucking Kevin Smith circa 93, 94 that go, hey, man, you got to put it in a theater, and hence, that's why you know we're trying the distribution thing this way. Four minutes. What time is it? Okay. What time is that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the show's at 10. All right. Sir. I don't know. I mean, you guys have watched it. Uh, and, and, and I'm sorry, we haven't really even talked quality, but I, we know that's not what this is about. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to like the movie or you're, you're blown. I will tell you this. I'm going to take some time out. I mean, I watched it Sundance, 1,200 people, and I'd never seen it with 1200 people and shit and that was our first the cut that we showed at Sundance was the cut that I'd done and had everybody watch at the at the cast and crew screening so at the end of the movie you know I was sitting in the back watching it first as a director and then all of a sudden my editor hat came on and I started going oh I could lose that why did I leave that that's a little airy why don't I take that and when you're doing that when the director goes to sleep and the editor is fucking sharp and still looking that means there's some work to be done so I think there's about five or ten minutes of shaving. And it's air. You would never notice. There's no whole sequences or anything like that. But just going in and kind of tightening it up. But regardless of quality or content, you've all seen it. It doesn't feel like anything more than an R, right? Excellent point. Excellent fucking point. I know. Famous last words. I'm like, I'm sure we'll get an R. Cut to bloodthirsty battle with them. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I went out of my way to not make it gory. You know what I'm saying? And like, and that came from a place of logic. There's, I, I've kind of told the story on the, one of the Red State podcasts, but it's easier to tell now because you've seen the movie. When I wrote the draft, the uh, first draft, the dude on the cross had like a goat's head on him and shit like that, kind of like Ken Russell's Lair to White Worm. In fact, it was Ken Russell's Lair to White Worm. That was a very frightening image I saw in that movie and I stole it and put it in mine. And I got a call from the SFX department, guys who are going to be building it and shit. 
and they're like, uh, I had written goat's head. And they're like, you know a human being's head won't fit in a goat's head, right? And I didn't know that, you know, I don't know any goats and shit. I assumed it worked and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, of course not. Goat's head. I meant a ram's head. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess you get a human's head and a ram's head. Let me go back and work on design. I got a call the next day. He goes, yeah, yeah, we could do it. Basically, we're doing ram's head. We'll do some weird leather and metal on the back. Looked like they kind of made it themselves. I said, yeah, that's the ticket. And he goes, that's going to be five grand. And I was like, right on, five grand. All right, let's do it. And he goes, uh, okay, five grand's my entire special effects budget on this movie. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I thought we were in Cop Out Land again or Zack and Mary World where you'd just be like, yeah, spend it. Go ahead. So I was like, oh, we got to be creative here. 5000 I can't have you spend your whole budget. We got other shit to do. He's like, there are some other things I could like to buy for the movie. And I said, um, I said, well, let me think on it. And I called him back and I was like, hey, man, what if we just put like a creepy Ben Cooper mask on him? Like with the rubber band around the back and it had like a little devil face or something like that. You know, that might be kind of eerie. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's cheap too. And then I was just like, yeah, but when they shoot him, the blood's going to go everywhere and the man. And then I was like, wait a second. Why would they fucking let the blood go everywhere? These motherfuckers hate gay people. They wouldn't want a fucking drop of that blood to hit. So then I started going like, well, all right, well, how do you fucking keep blood from going everywhere? And I was like, well, I guess if they wrapped him up, hermetically sealed him and shit. And it was weird. Like, I literally sat in my room. I felt like a fucking killer because I had to sit there and plot. Like, first you would wrap him up. Then you'd wrap the head. And then if you shoot directly down into the head and bandage that, you know, no fuss, no muss, no blood. And he's just this kind of saran wrap mummy. That, that, but that was necessity was the mother of invention. I couldn't build the fucking ram's head. And it, this was cheaper. So I was like, let's do this. And then it, it, you realize it's more unsettling because you got saran wrap in your house. You know what I'm saying? You don't have a ram's head in your house. If you did, then, you know, you'd be like, why do you have that creepy thing? But the saran wrap in your, you know, you just next time you go into your cupboard and you see saran, you're going to be like, <laughs> just taking something from the real world kind of worked. But I don't know. I, I can't. Maybe they'll give it to us because it's so damn unsettling. They'll try to push me on an R. But with no gore or anything, I can't see how they can do it. But then, like you said, I couldn't see it on Zagamir either. Uh, hopefully, well, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, Clerks opened in New York, L.A., one screen apiece, I believe, so there's that option. Uh, that's going to be very crowded Halloween time. The fucking saw is coming out. Uh, the, the, the paranormal activities, both of those into numbers now. There's a, a, a Steven Soderbergh movie coming out from Warner Brothers, like it's Contagion. Like we looked at the, it's pretty, pretty out, they're pretty tight out there, but we looked at every release week and it's just like, that's the game now, man. Now there's like four or five movies, strong contenders come out a week. So for us, we were like, fuck it, let's just pitch our tent on the sentimental date. Let's just go for, you know, the, the October 19th date because of that. Uh, worst case scenario, we'll open on a couple screens here, a couple screens there, and then do platform or something like that. But we've been reached out to by a number of uh, smaller exhibitors, not even like big chains, but like people that have six houses, ten houses, who are just like, bring it here, man, totally bring it. We'll let you run it here. You can keep the cash. We'll just keep popcorn and soda and shit like that. So lots of people come out of the woodwork, and that's that's kind of cool. So we, like I know right now, if we, we could open on October 19th on all the IFC screens in New York, Jonathan Searing was like, anything you need, I got screens for you. So we, we know we're safe there, and then we'll, we're now working and talking to other exhibitors beyond that about maybe partnering up in some way or something. So, you know, the, the nice thing is we only started making the movie like literally four months and a week ago. So in that time, everything's moved fast. Now we've got 10 months to really shore up what October 19th is going to mean for us. But that's that's kind of the aim. Yes, sir. About why the movie's not ballsy? 
Oh, the move's not ballsy. Yo, taking the movie out, to me, like, uh, uh, taking the movie on tour with me doesn't seem ballsy. I, I go out on tour anyway. Like I said, like, being that I live in my shoes all the time, I kind of know what happens on a regular basis to me. And last year, I walked into theaters to just stand up there by myself and seas of people in those seats. So for me, I was like, it's not risky to say, I'm going to come back, and this time I'm bringing my fucking movie, which people are talking about, and you wanted to see for years, and I've wanted to show you for years and shit like that. So for me, it doesn't feel ballsy. To me, it feels logical. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just going to my audience. That's absolutely fucking logical. Ballsy to me was always like, let's spend this much money on some bullshit nobody loves. Woo! You know, that that to me, I don't have those balls anymore. I used to be like, yeah, man, let's fucking, let's rock it. Let's just throw the money and see what happens, man. And now, the older I get, closer I'm being to done, the more I'm just like, ah, this is, we can probably do this ourselves without all the sturm and drang and shit. I'm just like, keep the money. I'd, I'd rather try this. Like I said, at least this one time, did it nine times the other way. Let me try this way just for once so that when I'm done, I could be like, you know what? I did go truly independent. You know, I went, I started in very independently, quickly got bought and not bitching about it. But I became part of a quasi indie system, you know, Miramax owned by Disney and shit. So I got to have indie cred without having to do indie work. There was always a corporate dollar behind us. So there's a part of me that always felt bad about that. If you go back and read all my press, I'm always like, I'm not really an indie filmmaker. I only did that once. But that's what they call me forever. You know what I'm saying? I For years, I tried to be like, call me a cult filmmaker, if anything, because I'm not indie. I did indie like once. Even Chasing Amy, which was made for like 250 I didn't pay for that. Harvey Weinstein, Miramax paid for that. They financed it. So at the end of the day, like I've only done it once. And I felt like, you know, it's weird. I've been living off the indie cred for fucking ever. Even whether I want that name or not, I get called indie. And it just sits there. You start to go like, all right, well, I'm not really technically. I was indie once, and I guess that was kind of cool. Like, I only really had to make one massive move in my life. My friend Malcolm is very fond of pointing out the fact that you got off your ass and went to Vancouver to film school and then came home and made a movie doesn't go with any part of your personality that I know about you. And I was like, I know. It was just that one time I was just sitting there. I saw Slacker, and everything just kind of made sense. And so I pushed for it. And I took a gamble and it paid off and I got to live off that gamble for years and years and years. And now I just would like to try it one more time. You know what I'm saying? Like I described it in a blog and I was telling my wife and she don't want to hear it no more because I'm always talking about it when I'm stoned. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. But I do. I use the Robert Frost and I'm like 17 years ago I came to Sundance and the, the world said of God, the universe, that film festival said, um, here's the path, two paths, pick one. You know, and I supposedly picked the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And I did. In terms of the grand scheme of the world, becoming a filmmaker, that is kind of the road less traveled by. But when you're doing that for nearly 20 years, you encounter the other road, which is the road within your art, within your within your business. And I did not travel the least traveled path there. I did take the road more traveled when I went the whole, sell your film and a studio will put it out. That's kind of the standard. So the universe gave me an opportunity to come back to the same point 17 years later. And after living a big fucking career of, of what I feel like is win, it gave me a chance to be like, okay, do you want to do that again? Or would you like to start it all over again and try rebuilding something fresh just to fucking change the expression? And I was like, all right, let's fucking do that. And you get that rarely happens. I mean, I've been around live 40 years. I've never had that happen except this one time. The fact that it was going to be at Sundance, like where it happened to me 17 years before. It was just profound, man. I was just like, wow, this is this is life trying to tell me something. And before I kind of hang up the skates, 
I would just like to go out the way I came in. I would like to go out independent. Like when I got into it, it wasn't like one day this will happen and I could finally make Jersey Girl, that movie I've been dreaming about for years. You know what I'm saying? Like I wanted to make, I would have died or killed you to make Clerks, Small Rats or Chasing Amy back in the day. I couldn't not do it. You know what I'm saying? It was like make these films or fucking die. And then the older you get, dude, once you get the passion out, once you tell those fucking stories you got to tell, then you just start doing it because it's your job. Then you just start doing it because you're like, well, this is my career. This is what I do for a living. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, for, I can't tell you many times in the course of the last few years, I would say, like, well, you know, film is, that's what I do for a living. It's my job now. You know, people be like, hey, you're going to become a better filmmaker. Very few people. And I would say, um, well, that's just because I've been doing it for so long. It's my job now. And I don't want it to be my job. When, when the young fat kid who wanted to make clerks, he, he wasn't looking for a job. He had a job at a fucking convenience store. He was looking to tell stories, make film, and, and he couldn't not. And now I cannot. You know what I'm saying? Now I can. There are days where I don't think about making movies at all. Back then it was like that's all you thought about. Now I think about dopey shit, like not making movies or making more podcasts or something like that. So for me, I don't know. I'm just kind of wrapping up, and I just want to finish the way I started. Just kind of – I always wondered what would have happened. Like what would have happened if Miramax didn't pick up Clerks? You know, I watched a screening of uh, Clerks at the IFFM before Sundance in 94. It took place in October of 93. And that was the thing you go to. You pay for a screening slot. Uh, you put your movie up there. You try to fill the room with as many potential distributors, uh, maybe press, marketers, as you possibly can get them interested. So that was October 93, October 3rd, 1993 at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, nobody went to that. Like uh, the people in the audience were pretty much people who worked on the cast and crew, like Brian, Jeff, Mosier, Dave Klein. Uh, Bob Hawk, uh, who I've talked about many times, an independent film guru, he was there sitting up in the front by himself. We didn't know who he was. But in that screening, first 15 minutes of that screening, in a 150-seat theater with only 10, 11 people in it, that was that was tough, dude. I was sitting there going, and I, mind you, I'm 23 at this point, and I've spent money I don't have on credit cards I shouldn't have. So I was just sitting there going, I'm fucking dead. Like, nobody in this fucking theater. And these people keep cursing. What the fuck is going on? Like, why won't anyone talk normal in this movie? And for the first ten minutes, it was hyperventilation. Like, I'm fucked. What the fuck was I doing? Why didn't anyone stop me? This is so dumb. And then 15 minutes in the movie, I just started cognitively reframing. And I was like, you know what, man? This is what you would have paid to go to a year of film school. So consider this your film school. Pay this shit off. And then one day, if you feel like taking a risk, making another movie again, you will. And so I got calm and shit like that. And that was the moment where I, I embraced failure because as far as I was concerned, I was working toward that IFFM screening, not Sundance. For me, Sundance was like where famous people went. So for the IFFM screening, I was like, if it don't happen here, it's never going to happen. And it happened and it didn't happen. And that day, 24 hours, man, clerks didn't sell. And I thought that was it. I'm absolutely fucked. And then the next day, the phone started ringing. Like, uh, what's his name? Um, Peter Broderick from Filmmaker Magazine called up and said, can I see your movie? Can you send me a copy of your movie? I heard the movie was really uh, fun and the undiscovered gem of the festival, of the IFFM. I said, where'd you hear this? You guys, I can't, t- can't tell you. I got a call before him even from uh, from uh, Amy Taubin in The Village Voice, who an article she had written about Richard Linklater was framed sitting next to my desk all the time I was working on clerks. This broad calls up, she's going, I'm Amy Taubin. I thought it was like Brian Johnson pretending, put some chick on the phone to talk to me and i gave her five minutes like this ain't amy Talbot, bullshit and if she finally convinced me and she was like i'd like to see the movie because i heard it was you know, really funny and, and and a friend of mine told me to check it out larry cardish who ran the new directors for new films festival in new york was a sister program to the new york film festival he called and said can you submit me a, t- a tape to us so we can check it out maybe include it in the festival 
three big fucking calls changed that day. 24 hours of like, we ran up to this finish line, hit it, and nobody gave a shit. The IFFM. And I was like, we're done. We're fucked. I'm like so in debt. I'm like paying off these credit cards forever. This is it. The very next day, those three calls came in and my life started changing very, very slowly. And by the time we hit Sundance, which was two, three months, three months later, then everything changed irrevocably. So there's always a part of me that's just like, what would have happened if it was just like that IFFM day, man, where there were no answers and somebody wasn't there with a checkbook and somebody wasn't there to be like, here, man, we'll pay for the marketing. Don't worry about that shit. We'll get it into theaters. What if I did have to schlep it myself? And if I had to do that in 93, I wouldn't have done it. I had no idea how to do that thing. I had no social media. The Internet pretty much didn't exist for people like me unless you were in college or in business. So um, at that point, I would have been dead in the water. But after all these years of learning shit, 17 years, I, I kind of know what to do. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't fear like, oh, what am I going to do if without some corporate backing or somebody with a bigger wallet? We figured all that kind of shit out. And I got this beautiful moment where life's like, here you go. Here's the same moment again. You want to do the same thing? And I've done the same thing pretty much nine times when it's come to that moment. And this one time I was just like, you know what? Let me try the other path just to see what fucking happens. And for me, that's thrilling, dude. I can't, I don't know how else to say it. I don't think there was ever, you know, a lot of people don't like some of the shit I do. I don't think there was ever a time, in fact, I know for a fact, there's never a time I made a movie where my heart fucking wasn't in it 100%. I didn't try my hardest. But there are movies, you look at my entire body of work, you can tell the ones that I love more than the others. You know what I'm saying? You can tell the ones that are made with passion, heart, not fucking sitting there going, okay, well, this would be funny. Just something that I like, if I don't tell this story, I'll fucking die. And I got to a point in my career where I was like, if I don't tell this story, I'll just tell another story. Because that's what I do for a living is tell stories. And I don't appreciate, not like I don't appreciate it, but I don't appreciate it as much as I did when I was a kid. Now I do. You know what I'm saying? There's a 10-year stretch where I was like, yeah, that's what I do for a living. And now it's risky again. Now it's fucking scary. It's terrifying. You know what I'm saying? Like, what if the whole thing doesn't fucking pan out? What if we can't get our theaters by October? You know, the tour is pretty okay. That's easy to figure out, like I said. But... What if later on doesn't work out? What if, like, you can't make any money releasing a movie without fucking spending on marketing and shit? And it's scary and frightening, and, and that's where fucking cool art comes from. And I got to tell you, man, I feel young and alive and shit like that. Somebody's called the punk rock filmmaking on Twitter, and I was like, yes, bitch. Like, I, 40 years old, I shouldn't feel that way, but I felt 23 again. I felt, going to Sundance, I felt like I did when I went to Sundance with Clerks. And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have this kind of move in my pocket where I'm like, all right, man, let me see if I can really, really, truly be the independent filmmaker that for years, nearly decades, they said I was. You know what I'm saying? Let me see if I can do it truly independent. And so I'm going to give it a shot, see if it happens. Good. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Uh, Sure. Light right here? Okay. Anyone else? Because we got to go real soon. Yes. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll go. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I've been getting that a lot. A lot of motherfuckers online are like, this ain't a horror movie, but I'm like, I think it is. I think it's horrifying. That shit that he says, there's nothing more horrifying than the shit coming out of his mouth. And I know it's splitting hairs in the way of like, I'm going to pick my distributor in the room auction style. But it's still splitting hairs. That, to me, is a horror movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, it may not be the standard horror movie, but 
I don't know, like Rosemary's Baby, when I go to buy it, it's always in the horror category. And if Rosemary's Baby counts as horror, this could count as horror because they're kind of like they're not traditional slashers, not a lot of blood. It's more about emotion and fucking weirdness and taking average looking things and turning them kind of into horrifying little paradoxes and shit. You know, the beauty of of Rosemary's Baby is how fucking terrifying Ruth Gordon and her husband are. And they just look like your grandparents. So that was kind of the notion behind behind uh, Red State. Like I wanted to make a horror movie like like that. Not as good as Rosemary's Baby because I ain't fucking that dude. But the the notion of like everything looks very normal or could be normal except for like that motherfucker in a cage and that ghost on the cross and ah. But I'm glad you can make it through it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of people say, "Why don't you just call it a drama?" I'm like, I don't, it doesn't feel like a drama. I I don't like. I'm not. I'm not trying to be tricky. If to me, that's a horror movie. Like if I was still working at RST, I'd put that in the horror section. And if somebody was like, "That belongs in drama," I'd be like, "You're out of your mind. It's in horror." <laughs> it is kind of the horror porgies. No wonder. That's where I got that shit. Um, all right, I gotta go up and do the other show. Thank you so much for coming out and seeing the flick. Um, and uh, we'll see you cats later on, man. Enjoy your weekend and whatnot. But that tells the whole Red State story up till now. Um, what What's going to happen uh, on Red State of the Union from here on in is, uh, since we're not going to pick up the class again, the second semester of Red State of the Union, we're going to pick up probably mid to late summer um, after we've toured a bit and whatnot. And that way it'll ramp it up, you know, in time for the fall, get ready for the fall release of, of Red State. And you're screening the first class. Tonight, the Tonight. first time we mm-hmm. did the, the Red State of the Union uh, class, uh, I told them, hey, we're going to all watch it at my house, and we were going to, and then the Avid broke. So instead, I was like, you know what? Rather than make you guys wait until the Avid's fixed, let's go down Layers of Pacific because that room so is – It just looks way better. It does. It's a massive fucking screen. You're watching it literally you in a movie theater. You have proper chairs. You and have they put on up, the floor in my they, living room. They put up way better food. I was there, and they put <laughs> up like cookies, fresh-made cookies. They put up – um, uh, like tamales and shit. I, I give out hundred calorie packs. Motherfuckers seem thankful, but I was at that screen. I was like, this is living, bitch. <laughs> so, um, there'll be some nice spread there. But then after that, we'll run that Q and A probably next week, um, with the class. Cause you know, I, I've let them ask everybody questions. They, I'm sure they're going to have a few for me. I'm like, yeah, give me my money back. <laughs> piece of shit. Um, and then, uh, and then what'll happen next is red state of the union will become red state colon smeet the press. And I'm going to do a series of uh, sit-downs with uh, people. We found a way, me and the press, to kind of meet uh, in the middle where I suggested, hey, let's just – you want to interview me? Chucky, you want to interview me? Uh, sit down. Let me record the whole thing. And then I'll podcast it and you do with it whatever you need to. Like you run it in your article, pull quotes, blah, blah, blah. That way I'm like I'm getting content for the network. And people who like this – like, or if you're listening to this podcast, you would like to hear me talk to a journalist like not everyone wants to hear a full hour-long interview but if you're listening to to the shows here yeah you're predisposed to listen so i felt like this is great content like everyone's loved the behind the scenes shit of the red state of the union uh q a so far like talking to adam like the ad just talking to people you don't know not just the stars you know what i'm saying that's what they always give you on tv like there's a star of this fucking movie like we get to talk to people behind the scenes and shit 
So Smeet the Press, I feel like that's me sitting down. Like this is you get to hear what an interview sounds like. You know what I'm saying? And I've always regretted like whenever I see like people pull quotes from my interviews, I'm like, man, I wish they'd run the whole thing because we had such great chat about this, that, or the other thing. So it's more casual and you're, you're, you're more people. intimate for sure. Yeah. And just definitely interesting too because it's not just like pulling quotes. It's mm-hmm. a, the conversation you actually sit there and have with a journalist. So for the next few months, it'll be Red State, Smeet the Press. First one up, I think, is uh, Jeff Snyder, um, who works for Variety. He worked for The Wrap for a while, and he works for Variety now. I think Kim Masters, who does her show on KCRW, it's called The Business, out here on the, the NPR station. Um, she And she wrote Hit and Run. She was well, half of the team that wrote that book about Goober Peters. I think she's coming on next to do it. I spoke to Mary Poles from Time Magazine already. So that was kind of cool. It does it for me. Time magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of what time's interested in this bullshit now? I'm on board. <laughs> oh, I know. I haven't been supportive of you. You from day have one. been amazingly <laughs> on board. And I thank you so much for, for doing that. Cause now there are many women in the world that hear their husband at age 40 go like, I wanted to try something young, dopey and punk. And have them go like, okay. Uh, I, th- I think you're gl- you're just glad I'm not buying a convertible and trying to fuck 20-year-olds. You're like, if this is his midlife crisis, so be it. I can deal with this. He just wants to go out on tour with his movie. It's what he does. I'm happy. Go on, Kev. Have fun. We're going to have fun. I'm going too. You are going to be there almost every tour stop. You know, Somebody's got to fuck me on the road, man. I got a tour bus. I want to fuck on the tour bus like a rock star, man. I need you there. Let's move on from that. No, let's talk about that. We were talking about take this panties sec- down. Let me take your pants is down part two of until you red sing. state of the union classes don't say stop yes red state of the union uh <laughs> q and a's uh will begin again as i said when we pick up in midsummer uh we'll solicit of course on twitter for uh when we're when the classes are open uh and you can sign up for that and stuff hopefully see john goodman speak yes this time and around we're bringing everybody out it's like the first the pas yes. i'm going to the pa1 that's going to be you'll have an episode we'll sit down and talk to jennifer uh we'll sit down and talk to john goodman we'll talk to melissa leo we'll talk to um who haven't we spoken to yet kevin Pollock, yeah. kevin alejandro uh, I want to talk to Dave Klein again because he got the shortest episode. But he, now that people are seeing the movie, there's lots to talk right. about. Um, on and on and on. The PAs is going to be a great episode. And we'll be able to speak about the tour. Yeah, at that point. We will be totally. back from the 15, 16, 20 stop tour. <laughs> totally. And have a lot to talk about how and that it, went. And it's also kind of like at the end of the day, uh, we'll, we're, we're able to be more candid in the podcast now because people have seen the movie. People talk about like everyone knows what John Goodman does in the movie now. If you if you don't, if you're spoiler free, I'm not going to say it. But you know what I'm saying. There's enough information out there where we may be able to kind of be a bit more forthcoming right. about Red State itself rather than kind of dancing around. Mm-hmm. Like, you still see, <laughs> you know, be a little bit more detailed and stuff. So stick around. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, meantime, the the journey of Red State is beginning. Man, come on board if you can. See us in theaters October 19th. But if you want to help us out, see it earlier. We're on the road all March long. Uh, I'm taking it across the country. Go to coopersdell.com, C-O-O-P-E-R-S-D-E-L-L.com for all the ticket information. Uh, where we're going to be kicks off Radio City Music Hall on March 5th, and it ends April 9th at the Wiltern. You're going to be up on stage at Radio City Music Hall. I most certainly am not. What the fuck are you talking about? Why wouldn't you go on stage? You know that's not my thing. I know it's not your thing, but it's like, how many chances are you ever going to have in this life? Don't you want to be like 80 years old and fucking telling your grandkid, like, I was on the stage at Radio City Music Hall, and the fishies had no eyes. 
They were eyeless, the fishies, I tell you, eyeless. Let's and Harley focus. ushers her daughter away like, we'll leave Grandma alone now. Eyeless! Eyeless! And you're wheeled away into a back room. Let's refocus. Please, <laughs> rein it in. Radio City Music Hall, March 5th. The will turn April 9th. Between there, Chicago, Boston, uh, you know, you know the usual, a bunch of cool cities. Go look, coopersdell.com. Um, in the meantime, uh, look forward to uh, more continuing Red State Adventures on Smeet the Press uh, until we pick up again with uh, Red State of the Unions in midsummer. Uh, for Red State of the Union right now, though, uh, is Kevin Smith. Jen Schwabach. Thanks for the support and keep up with us, man. It's going to be fun, exciting <laughs> times. Red State, man. It's not comedy like Clerks. It's a horror movie like Jersey Girl. <laughs> Goodbye.